people in life. So, well, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, I want you for a moment to imagine your favorite epic movie. And when I say epic movie, I don't mean something that involves any type of chick flick mantra. I'm not talking about a documentary, and I'm certainly not talking about anything that includes Leonardo DiCaprio or anything like that, okay? I'm looking for an epic movie. Imagine one in your head. Pick your favorite one. Now imagine what would happen if the main character in this movie comes to a point where the conflict or the, the challenge, the choice is before him, and what would happen in that movie if he said, eh, not really up for the challenge? Wouldn't that be a horrible movie? I, of course, I always bring things back to Lord of the Rings just because that's the way I am. So if you're already sick of hearing about Lord of the Rings, you probably, never mind. Um, but I always bring things back to Lord of the Rings. And I imagine what would happen if in Rivendell, everyone is gathered together and Elrond says, one of you must destroy this ring. And what would happen if they all looked around like this? I don't want to. You want to? No. How many of you have seen the movie? We're, we're aware, okay? So what would happen if that? And then if he looks directly at Frodo and he said, Frodo, will you take the ring? What about if Frodo said, Ugh. sounds like a lot of work, to be honest with you. You know, you're talking about orcs and mountains and a big, long walk. Can't I just watch ESPN? Like, wouldn't that be easier? It would be a horrible movie, wouldn't it? We wouldn't watch a movie like that. We wouldn't watch a movie when the main character, when given the opportunity, the challenge before his eyes, if he backed down. It would be a terrible movie. So, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why godliness is so hard at times? Why at some points in your life it feels incredibly difficult to live the holy life, the godly life that we're called to live? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why so many Christians feel defeated and guilt-ridden when it comes to their spiritual growth? Maybe you've heard people say something like this, or you have said this yourself. Maybe you've said, yeah, I'm a Christian now. Shouldn't I be past this sin by now? Shouldn't it be out of my life? I feel defeated. I feel like I will never get over this. I'm supposed to be this new creation in Christ, yet I'm doing what I did before I ever met Jesus. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered if God really loves you or still could love you after all the sin that you have done? Haven't we burdened him enough? Or maybe you have wondered, like the bad examples of those characters, what would, maybe you're just saying, I don't even think it's worth the fight. Maybe it's not even worth it. Open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be working from 16 through 26 this morning. So Galatians chapter 5. This is our 13th message on Galatians, and we're approaching the end of the book. Paul has successfully shown us that salvation is about the grace that's given to us by Jesus, that the law can only lead to death. It cannot save. And most recently, this was two weeks ago, that in Christ we are free from the law. We are not to use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. Now in this portion of chapter 5, verse 16 and on, this is where Paul gets very practical, very pastoral. 
He's built up this giant argument on how we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and it's only by grace, we've heard that many times, right? It's only by grace that we are justified and made right before God. But now, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets practical. How are we to live the godly lives that we are called to live? Jesus himself expects this from us. He said, be holy as I am holy. Sounds intimidating, right? How does a Christian grow? How does a Christian get past sin and move on and grow? So start with me in verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. This is the practical part, right? To avoid gratifying the desires of the flesh, to stop sinning, and to live a godly life, Paul commands this church and commands us to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through this, I'm like, man, it would be so much easier if he just gave three points. Do this, do this, do this, and then this happens. Wouldn't that be amazing and simple? But Paul gives us this kind of lofty, it feels like it's in the clouds. Walk in the Spirit. It sounds a little bit like a hippie movement, right? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean? It sounds like it's just hard to grab. It's like you're grabbing for clouds. But here it is in all of its radiance. I can assure you that this could not be more practical for you and I. Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How is this so practical? Well, before we answer this, we need to be reminded of what Paul has really already told us about the Spirit of God in this book of Galatians. And before that, we need to know what the Scriptures really as a whole teach about God the Holy Spirit. I've heard it joked before that the Baptist Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. You guys ever heard that before? It's often we don't really make much mention of the Spirit of God because we're afraid of being like a certain group of people. We don't want to look like them, so don't talk about the Spirit of God. But we need to know the Spirit of God, okay? God existed eternally. This is Holy Spirit 101. So this is the, the basic class for us. He existed eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Living in eternity past in perfect delight. 
perfect fellowship, not once in any type of conflict or misunderstanding or confusion. Perfect harmony. I think that's hard for us to imagine because we don't have relationships on the earth like this often, right? Perfect harmony. Then God created the world. The Father was the grand architect. He created through the work of the Son, for by him all things were created, is what Colossians says. And he did this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, over the face of the deep. Job says in Job chapter 33 that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Luke 24, Jesus said, When I go, you will be clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit, number one, is a person is God. He is a person. He's real. He's not some mystical force. He is a person. And number two, he is sheer power. He is a person and he is power. Jesus told his disciples that before he left that it is actually to your advantage that I go because when I go, the helper will come and I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is what he does. He will teach you all things, cause you to remember all things, Bear witness about Jesus. Convict the world, you and I, of sin and righteousness. He will be our helper, our comforter, the down payment and the seal of our salvation until we receive the eternal promises of God that are waiting for us. The Holy Spirit is God and he is power. He is infinite power. He illuminates our hearts to see the goodness of the gospel he convicts us of sin and righteousness, and he transforms our lives into the likeness of the Son, Jesus. And this is the thing that I want to get at. He perfectly knows the mind and the will of God because he is God. And this, guys, is the best part. He actually resides in us. The Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. We have God himself living in us. How often do we really ponder that? That God is dwelling within us, giving the power to conquer sin. That's what we're talking about this morning. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's simple, really. Paul is saying that if we yield each facet of our lives to the Holy Spirit's direction, if we walk by the Spirit, then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But here's the problem, I think. I think, unfortunately, many of us don't yield to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think many of us don't really give much of our lives at all over to his direction. We say, I understand you're there and you're the one convicted. Yeah, I get that. But I kind of still want to just do what I want to do. Some of us who might be true Christians, have ignored and quenched the Holy Spirit for so long that we might not even be able to hear his voice any longer. That's a scary thought. Imagine a kid who's running out into the road because there's a ball out there that he wants to get. And he's running and his mom says, don't do it, don't go to the road. And the kid just keeps running. The mom is screaming, don't go in the road. And as he keeps running, getting farther away, don't go to the road, don't. And the kid all of a sudden is overwhelmed by the noise of all the vehicles on the road because he sees the ball. But meanwhile, the mom had a brand new ball, what the kid was looking for all the time. It's like that oftentimes with the Spirit, even with true Christians. We want to do the will of God. We know that in him is life. But we keep pushing him 
away because there's a problem. And if you can see what I'm getting at, this is the problem. Ready? Meet your sin nature. You hear a lot of times people, well, the devil made me do it. Well, maybe, but he's only one person. It can only be one place at one time. But your sin nature dwells within you permanently at all times. Yay! Okay, we have two natures. So, again, for the Lord of the Rings fans in the house, again, most illustrations will come from this. I apologize, but not really. All right? If you have watched the movie The Two Towers, that's the second movie in the trilogy, you're probably very familiar with a creature whose name is what? Gollum. Gollum, right? Gollum, or Smeagol, as he once was called. And there's some really, really fascinating scenes in that movie because you will see him at two different times in the movie, it's really evident, where he is having a discussion with himself. There's a multiple personality disorder going on there. There's this Smeagol character who's timid, who, no, no, we must obey master. We can't, we can't do this. And then there's the Gollum side, and he's fierce, and he's vicious. And really what Gollum wants is to kill Smeagol, and what he wants leads to death. But you see, inside this one person, these two natures at war within each other. They're yelling at each other back and forth at times. This is kind of what it's like in our lives. We, as Christians, do have this new nature. We do. We are new in Christ. Amen? But it doesn't mean that the old nature has disappeared or gone away. We live with two natures. One day we will only live with this one. And I think we all cannot wait for that day when we are no longer lured and enticed by the sins that so easily ensnare us. But in the meantime, there is a war to be won. There is a battle to be fought. In verse 17, Paul says, he explains this nature, this battle even more. He says, the desires, the cravings, the ravenous appetite of the flesh, the sin nature, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, before we move on much, I need to say when the terms desires or flesh or the lust of the flesh, whatever your translation says, when those things are used, Paul's not talking about like the good desires in life. For instance, when you're hungry, you need to eat. That's how you are sustained in this life. When you have loved ones and you want to protect them, those are good desires. So it's not any desire you have is automatically sinful. There are good natural desires we have. But what Paul is talking about, and I think we all know what this looks like, is the sin nature. Those desires that well up within us, that we know are always there, that lure us, that tempt us, that try to convince us of doing evil instead of doing what we know to be right. Paul is talking about these sinful cravings, these evil lusts. Now, Let's take a quick poll because, you know, a sermon just isn't complete with an awkward hand raising to an obvious question, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Let's take a quick poll. Who wants to, wait for the description, who wants to live a godly life, a fully fulfilling life that's pleasing to the Lord at all times and have an eternal inheritance with him knowing that your sins are washed away for all time? Who wants that? I'll be very concerned if someone was like, no, that doesn't sound interesting at all. We, that's what we want. That's what we desire to do. Okay, here's the other side. And raise your hand if you want to sin so much that you want to ultimately be Satan's minion, destroy your life completely, grabbing after things that never, ever, ever, ever satisfy, ruin your life, the lives of all those around you, and eventually end in a lake of fire. Nobody does. No, this is not a trick question. I did not want to make this sound appealing, Boyd. Okay? 
Nobody ultimately wants this. We might be tempted into thinking that our sin will eventually lead to good, but that is not the case. True Christians, regenerate Christians, want to obey and do the will of God. Deep down, we do. The new nature within us wants that. The believer desires to walk in the ways of the Lord. But here's the reality. The opposition is strong. If you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, and if you've ever tried to battle your sin, you know this to be true. The opposition doesn't go down without a fight. No matter how tough you think you are, how disciplined you might be, how much better than others you think you are, no matter what, you are powerless in your own strength to combat and have victory over the flesh. We need to know that because a lot of us, that's how we fight our sin. We just try harder, try harder. Maybe if I just try harder and set up more, more rules around my life, maybe then I'll stop sinning. It doesn't work that way. The opposition is so strong that we could never in our own strength conquer sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a single person who hasn't given in. You cannot fight the flesh in your own power. It will never work. It will gradually convince you that darkness is light, that sin is good and even necessary, and will lure you into thinking that God doesn't really see your sin, and even if he did, it's probably not that big of a deal. Fighting your flesh in your own power may appear, I'll give you this, it may appear to work for a season, but the fruit is this. It's a shiny exterior, a self-righteous mentality, and a heart that is unaffected. That's what trying harder is going to do for you. It doesn't bring forth real fruit. It's a masquerade. It's not real. Our strength is grossly insufficient to defeat our sin nature in this war. However, guys, this is the good news. This is what Paul is talking about with the life of the Spirit. However, this opposition isn't so strong that it's unbeatable. In fact, in comparison to the almighty eternal strength and power of the Spirit of God, the flesh crumbles. It is nothing in comparison. As weak as we may feel we are in fighting our sin nature, which is true, the Spirit of God in you can conquer and can conquer quickly. Doesn't always conquer quickly, but he can. The flesh is nothing compared to God himself. So my question for us this morning is this, and we often always think of other people when this giant list of sins uh, arises, but let's think of our own heart. Let's think of our own life. How are you doing in the fight? Are you even fighting your sin? Do you even realize that you're supposed to fight your sin? We've been talking all through this book about grace. Oh, we've received grace. It's Some of us kind of just kick back. Grace is good. I don't have to do a thing. You're right. You can't achieve your salvation. That's not what we're talking about, though. Our justification, our salvation is by grace and grace alone through faith. But our sanctification, our life lived in godliness, is a cooperation. It is us cooperating with the Spirit of God. Salvation, not us at all. Sanctification, get to work with the Spirit. That's the difference. 
Paul understands this struggle in one of the most famous passages that we ever read, and I think, especially new Christians, when you read Romans 7, you're like, yes, somebody gets it. But in Romans 7, Paul says this, for I do not understand my own actions. He's describing this dual nature within, and listen to this, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do, not, if, or if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You, you see the, the battle back and forth? Paul wants to do what is good, but he realized that there's this sin nature. There's this desire of my flesh that it's opposed. It doesn't want to do the things that I deep down ultimately want to do. The good I know I ought to do. The good I would actually delight in. Two natures. Do you feel the struggle? If you've never actually felt this struggle, this should cause you to pause and think if you have claimed Jesus for a long time, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you've never ever felt this struggle, you should really wonder if you are or not. Because the life of the new nature is not compatible at all with the old nature. Paul says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Our God is holy, and he calls us to holiness. Sin cannot be in his presence. Jesus took the payment for you so that we could be made right. And we're going to wallow in this. Verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If we have believed this message of God's salvation in Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says earlier in the book. And if we have the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit. And if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. I think the Jewish Christians of this day that Paul's writing to had a really hard time understanding this. Throughout the book, I think we see clues of that. And I think that's why Paul writes this letter. In chapter 3, if you remember, he asks this. He says, now tell me this. Did you receive the Spirit of God? So they have received it, right? Did you receive that by works or by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If we have received the Spirit of God by faith, We are then perfected, sanctified, made holy, made godly through the work of God as we cooperate with him. Then Paul says, we are not under the law, but we are free in Christ from the law to live as we ought to live by his grace in freedom. And that's what Pastor Chris talked about two weeks ago. Only the life lived by God is truly free. You're going to be a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. Being a slave to righteousness is freedom. Being a slave to sin is pure slavery. Now, what does a life of freedom in the Spirit actually look like? Well, what about a a life of slavery to the flesh? We're told about both, and these are the long lists that we get in this chapter. So look at verse 19. It is easy to see servants of the flesh. We don't have the ability to judge another person's salvation, but these fruits in people's life, the works of the flesh, they're pretty obvious. Listen to this list one more time, and I'm not going to breeze through it. I'm going to pause intentionally to make us think about these sins because they're hostile to God. Servants of the flesh, those who live by their old nature, are marked by the following evidence. Number one, 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, putting anything else over the rightful place that God has. Sorcery, oh, I clearly have never participated in any of that wickedness. Well, how about these? Enmity, strife, jealousy. Ever been a contentious person? When you've um, interacted with family or close friends, are you the type of person that has ever caused division and strife? Or are you the person that brings unity? Are you characterized by this? What about jealousy or envy? This is really hard, I think, in, in America because we really do have so much. We get very quickly dissatisfied by what we have and we always look. This is, this is the worst thing I think about, about like social media and uh, Facebook and Pinterest. It's this giant comparison party. You know what I mean? Where you're looking and someone wants their family and you're like, oh man, our family's never like that. There's stuff all over. My house is never clean. And you get this, this ridiculous jealousy welling up within. That's wicked. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Quick question. Do these words make you uncomfortable at all? Makes me uncomfortable reading them in front of a bunch of people. Yeah, let's talk about sexual immorality and fornication and pornography and all of these other sins that for some reason a lot of us still tolerate or say, no, it's not that big of a deal. God probably doesn't see all of that. Really? The God who made you and spoke everything into existence can't see all your sin? One commentator on this passage writes that people living in these sins do not like to hear the wickedness called by name. We don't like to hear adultery for adultery or jealousy for jealousy. We like to say, oh, you know, I, it sure would be nice to have something like that. That sounds a whole lot more politically correct than you're envying. You have a jealous heart. That sounds a little bit more pointed. But he says, people don't like to hear the wickedness called by name. But that is what these things are. Sexual immorality is wicked. Affairs, whether in practice or in thought, are wicked. Strife, divisions, fits of anger, wicked. It's funny that we often, like, will, uh, we'll notice this in, in our kids when they throw a fit. We're like, we do not throw fits. But then most of us adults still throw fits in life. You ever, you ever wonder that? You guys are like, no, you don't talk about me like that. We do. We know that's the reality in our life. There are times where we feel so infuriated by something so petty that we blow a lid. That's of the old nature. There is nothing holy or righteous about that. It is evil. All of these things are evil, and here's the thing. They will kill you. James tells us that our sinful nature, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown and it's all grown up, brings forth death. I want to urge you and urge myself Let's not dabble in this filth anymore. We can't do it. What fellowship can light have with darkness? Truly, God never made man to live like that. In the muck, in the mire. A completely unfulfilling life where we're just destroying ourselves, destroying ourselves, ruining our life. Is that what God has made us for? Romans 6 is another incredible passage that parallels a lot of this. And Paul says very similar things. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And later he says, So you must also consider, therefore, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He commands, he says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and those, as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. After this long list of sins, Paul says this, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not very pastoral, is it? Kind of pointed. When he says those who do such things, we do need to clarify. Is Paul saying that anyone who has ever committed any of these sins will never, ever inherit the kingdom of God? For that's impossible. Is that what Paul's saying? I'm telling you that's not what he's saying because that's not consistent with the rest of the scriptures. If that were the case, none of us would really be able to be saved in the first place. If there was no hope, one sin, automatic death, and no, no way around it, no way to have life through Jesus, we'd all be dead in our trespasses and there'd be no hope. However, when he says those who do such things, this is referring to people who actively make a habit of these types of things. In other words, those who have made a regular practice of these things, where these things are consistently present in their lives, that person should have serious pause and wonder if they are, in fact, in fact a slave to the spirit or, in fact, a slave to the flesh. Jesus says, very simply, in one of the most beautifully simple parables ever, he says, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. If it's a good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. If it's a bad tree, it produces bad fruit. And if you know the passage, you know the end of that tree is not good, right? It's cut up and thrown into the fire. Those who do such things. We will know a tree by its fruit. Is this list of heinous sin, is that your fruit? Don't think about other people you know, or yeah, of course, that's characteristic in so-and-so's life, and I have someone in my family who, da, da, da. No, this is for you and I. Is this characteristic of our life. There is a stark difference in living in these sins and falling into them on occasion, though, and I want to make that, that clear distinction for everybody. Uh, one commentator says, if people are characterized by these things, then they prove that they are not Christians at all. Real Christians may fall into them and probably will at times, but here's the kicker. They are miserable and wretched until they confess them. When the psalmist says, you know, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. For, I, I can't, no. That's the feeling. If you've ever had that feeling regarding your sin, that's a good feeling, okay? <laughs> if you've never had that feeling, that would be terrifying. Meh, whatever. If that's your laissez-faire attitude towards sin, this passage should cause you to pause. So just because you or I commit one of these sins, it does not mean that we are not Christians. Psalm 32 says, gloriously, it says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
But let me also say this. If you claim to be a Christian, which we all raised our hand, yeah, this life looks good, this life looks good. If you claim to be a Christian and your life is marked by these things with little or no remorse for them, are you sure you have the Spirit of God living within you? Have you fallen into sin, feeling remorse for it, or are you actually bound to darkness as its slave? But for those of you who believe and who have fallen into one of these sins, feeling maybe broken, even maybe this morning, broken, cast down, defeated, if you feel that way, good. You're like, wait a minute, that's not what I was expecting. Good if you feel that way. You want to know why? Isn't that where Jesus met you in the first place? That's exactly where he met me. When I was self-righteous and living in sin, God said, not anymore. We cannot exhaust his grace. You cannot exhaust his grace. His grace isn't the leftover drops at the bottom of a barrel. His grace is an overflowing torrent of love and kindness in you that he had before all things were created, that he has given to you in Christ Jesus. That's his grace. You cannot exhaust that. You were predestined in Christ for glory, to be a light in the darkness, to share this message of hope with the world, and to be transformed into the image of Christ, living life by the Spirit, which is for our good. But I'm not sure we all actually think that is for our good. At times I think we think our will is really for our good, and God's will, I know I probably should, but really this is what's going to make me happy. We like to sing songs like, I surrender all, when really we're like, I surrender some. Suppose I'll give what is convenient, I surrender some. That's really what's going on in our hearts because there's this war back and forth. We want to, in our new nature, we want to live godly. We desperately do. But guess who isn't dead yet? The sinful man. We must realize that only a life obedient to God is a truly free life. His will brings freedom. He leads us away from things for our good. He brings us toward things for our good. He gives us gifts for our good, and he even takes things away for our good. Life by the Spirit is for his glory and your good. It's not for his glory and for your despair. It's mutually good, and that's why we pursue such things. And that life, verse 22, looks like this. Life in the Spirit looks like this. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. Doesn't this list perfectly characterize Jesus? I mean perfectly. Perfect love. We've never known a love like the love he has shown to us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. That makes no sense. That is love. Perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect patience and kindness, perfect goodness and faithfulness, perfect self-control. Man, if only I could have that. 
Sin would be no problem if that were the case. Perfect. This is the life of Jesus. This is the life of the Father. This is the life of the Spirit. This is the life that is offered to you and I through the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Against such things, guys, there is no law. You do not need any law to control such a man that walks in the Spirit. Laws, rules, behavioral modification, all of these things, they can't manage love. They can't manage self-control. They can't produce these fruits of the Spirit. Impossible. It only comes through the Spirit as we cooperate with Him. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. (coughs) Sorry about that. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. To belong to Christ Jesus means that we are his child. Chapter 4 talked about this glorious reality that we are adopted as sons and daughters. It was actually at a conference where there was like a whole hour and 15 minute long message just about our adoption as sons and daughters. It was just incredible that we should be called the sons of God. Me? You? Incredible. Those who belong, Paul says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He assumes this to be a reality. I began this message asking why living a godly life can be so hard, can be so difficult at times. Hopefully now we see that it's kind of obvious. It's because of the old nature living within us. The sin nature that still dwells within us. But, and this is the point, someone else has taken up residency in our hearts. The mighty Spirit of God. Paul assumes in this verse that we are crucifying those who have. In other words, those who have done it and are continuing to do it. Those who have crucified the flesh. So my question is, is that you? Are you even in the game? Do you realize that there is an enemy to put to death in you at all times? We talk about, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times the Christian life is portrayed as this life of just happy, 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 never a battle. But really, what this Christian life is, is it's, hey, Jesus said, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. Welcome to the life of death so that you may live. Death leads to life. If we live in, in our sins, in that type of death, that will never lead to life. But if we die to this, if we die to our flesh and heed the Spirit, say, yes, God, I want, every time you convict me with that little thought in my head, every single time that I'm opening up your scriptures and you reveal to me what is right and true, every single time I choose actively to say yes and to follow you, that is the life that leads to true eternal life. There is a war for your soul going on within you. Hebrews 12, one of my favorite chapters, reminds us, he says, well, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So if we think we've fought enough, Finally, maybe I can take a break. Have you, have you fought your sin so perfectly as Christ had that you shed your blood for it? Probably not. Keep fighting. It's worth it. If you aren't fighting your sin, you are its slave. If you aren't fighting your sin in the power of the Spirit, you will lose. But 
if you heed the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit within you, walk in step with the Spirit at all times, crucifying the old nature within you, then you will have victory over your sin. This is another one of those things that, yeah, that sounds great. But how does one walk in step with the Spirit? It sounds kind of, uh, I, want to, I want meat and bones to that. What does that look like? Here's a dumb Jared illustration. The idea behind walking in the Spirit almost has this original idea of like a cadence, like a march in a military, where one person is following the next, and what one does, every single person in the whole group does that. So imagine in your struggle against sin, in your desire to live according to the flesh, imagine the Holy Spirit so, as a person so close in front of you, you are staring at him at all times. The instant his foot lifts, yours lifts, and you follow. The instant he takes another step, you do it. The instant he, you turn, or he turns, you turn. You follow so closely. The only way this can happen, though, is if we actually believe, first of all, and do it secondly, that this is actually God speaking to us. A lot of people just want to scrutinize and criticize and say, well, that part's not for me, that part's not for me. I pick and choose what I want to believe. God has spoken to us through his word. And if you don't open this, you should never expect to live life according to the Spirit. Not going to happen. You can't hear from God and say, yeah, Holy Spirit, I want to hear from you, all the while saying, nope, no thank you. But yeah, I really want to. That doesn't make any sense. The only way we hear from God is through his word. It tells us exactly who he is. It tells us exactly who we ought to be and how to do it. And if we keep it closed, expect to live in death. Just expect it, because that's what's going to happen. But if we follow the Spirit of God so closely, when he takes a step, we take a step. We obey every single time. We're never going to gratify the desires of the flesh that way. It's when we look aside and get pulled by our own desires, and then we start drifting away. I have no idea what he's doing if I'm not looking at him. You have no idea what God wants for you if you're not beholding him in his word and depending on him in prayer. What does life walking by the Spirit look like? Paul doesn't give us one, two, three. Here it is. Do it and you're good. Try it. Figure it out. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's worth it. Along with that victory over sin you will have the following. Your life will be characterized by the following. Love. Joy. Anybody wanting joy in their life? Feel down often? There's a way to acquire joy. One last note, oftentimes we, we pray for the fruits of the Spirit, not realizing that they're actually fruit. We pray for them as the means to an end, but really the only way to achieve that is by walking by the Spirit. So don't just ask, God, give me self-control, and then never listen to the Spirit of God. It's not going to happen. But if you want to be a person of love and a person of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if you want that, walk in the Spirit, crucify your flesh, and then you will experience life. The question is, is that fight worth it to you or not? If fighting your sin is worth it to you, then you'll do it. If it's not worth it, you won't put forth the energy, you won't cooperate with the Spirit, and you'll stay in death. I want to have the, the worship team come up one more time. They're going to lead us in one last song, but as they do, let's pray. 
Holy Spirit, it seems like in our prayer life we rarely talk to you, but I'm coming to you directly and asking that you would that you would convict us, that you would draw us to the person of Jesus. He's incredible. Our life is found in him. There is no joy, there's no life, there's no peace apart from the Son of God. And so, Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts this week, I mean, not just, not just today, but for the rest of our lives. Make us sensitive to your spirit. Help us to hear. Help us to know your will and to choose to do it every moment of every day. For some reason, Lord, and forgive us when we think this, but for some reason we think that that type of life isn't going to be any fun, isn't going to provide any type of joy or satisfaction. But the opposite is true. Help us to see that. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us. Renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for, of your plans for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus because we've got no one else. We've got nothing else. We've got no righteousness in our own selves. We only have righteousness in you. And now we can have holiness if we walk according to your spirit. Amen.